Well, good morning and welcome again one more time to Encounter our Church. We're so glad that you're here with us, especially maybe if this is your first time or first couple of times uh, visiting with us. Super glad. My name is Dirk, pastor here at Encounter. We're in part four of a five-part series uh, called Beyond You. See, what we're doing throughout this series is taking a look at the book of Nehemiah to, to learn how, how, how there's some areas of life that our heart just breaks and how God's heart actually breaks over those areas as well and calls us to live this, this sort of beyond you kind of life to speak into some of those. And so we took a look the first week again, uh, where does your heart break? And then about the passion and plan that God gives us uh, to, to do something about those things. And then last week we saw Nehemiah go to Jerusalem and he goes and he takes this. We said it was a searching and a fearless inventory of the state of things to make sure that the future doesn't repeat the past. And, and then this week, we're going to take a look at some of the opposition that comes in the way. So I just, I want to hit that and make an observation about some of the opposition in our lives. Because, uh, because ob uh, opposition, we tend to think, comes to us at our low point. Right? So sometimes we think that the opposition sets in when we fall down or when we mess up. You, you know, we get kicked while we're down, that sort of thing. And don't get me wrong, some of those, sometimes that happens. That's when opposition comes. But, but this morning especially, I want to make the observation that opposition doesn't just set in at our low point, but, but opposition can set in at our high points as well. So, so that the headwinds that we, we face and whatever it is that God is asking you to do, we face those not only in the valley, but sometimes on the mountaintop. And that sometimes can take us by surprise and rob us of something that he's given us. So what we want to do this morning is take a look at that and say, what are the mountaintop experiences? So for example, some of you were, uh, some of you were, were running in the riverbank run yesterday. Don't try to deny it because that's all I saw on my Facebook feed like all day. So I know that a lot of you were out there running. And what some of you runners know to be true, and I've talked to a few of you about this as well. I'm not a runner, but so, you know, I get my information from other people. But uh, you say that, you know, the, the, the headwinds or the opposition that I face, the discouragement, it, it doesn't always come. Like, like the scariest ones doesn't always come when I run out and I have a terrible uh, run. You know, when I go out and my pacing was off, my time was off, you know, I couldn't run very far, very hard. Like, it just, it wasn't all firing. It wasn't good. Like, it wasn't in those moments that I became most discouraged because it was in those moments that I knew, listen, I need to buckle down and I need to work twice as hard next time if I'm going to be able to do this race that I, my wife had already signed me up for. Sorry, that was just a slip in, but <laughs> some of you get it. Um, no, no, no. Some of you know that it's not just in the valley that opposition comes, that headwinds come, but it's on the mountaintop. It's like, it's like a month before or two months before the race. Like, you go out and you have an incredible run and the timing is right, the breathing right, the stride, like everything just comes, it comes all into and it's just perfect. And then it's those moments on the mountaintop where you go, I got this. I don't need to do anything about this. I got this thing in the bag. In fact, I can take the next couple of days off. I can take the next week off. It doesn't matter because I got this. And then, of course, the competition comes or the race comes and you realize, I don't have this, right? And it's not because of what happened, the headwinds or the opposition that you face in the valley, but on the mountaintop. Some of you also know that this is true in marriage or in your dating relationship, or whatever relationship that you have. Some of you know that, that it's not necessarily in the valley. It's not necessarily in this place where, where you're not communicating well, or you're not seeing, each, seeing things each other's way, or you're not stepping into each other's shoes. Some of you know that in the valleys, those times when you just, you, you fight over every little thing, and every little thing spirals into some big thing that's maybe like 10 or 12 years old, and it's never about the dishes, but it's about that huge thing that happened so many years ago, and you're like, look, 
looking at that and going, we need help. We need to talk to somebody. And opposition, those headwinds don't often come or don't only come in the valley of those moments when you're looking outside of yourself, when you're asking for help, when you're talking to somebody. But it really happens. The oppositions, the headwinds come on the mountaintop where you think, I don't need to do any of that stuff. I don't need to talk to somebody. I don't need a date night. I don't need to go. I don't need to share anything. I'm, we're good. We don't have to do anything because, after all, we're on the mountaintop. And looking back, it might be on the mountaintop that the opposition, that the headwinds were the fiercest, and we simply weren't expecting it. And that, friends, is exactly what we see in the Bible story this morning in the book of Nehemiah. You know, just to catch us up on a pace in case you're new here, we've been looking through the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a guy who was cupbearer to the king of Persia, which means he had a very cushy job working for one of the most powerful people in the world. And he gave up all of that because his heart just broke for this, the city of Jerusalem, where his ancestors were from, and where we get every indication that he's never even visited before. But his heart breaks for this place in Jerusalem. And so he calls together this passion, a plan from the king, and he gets all the building materials and a small guard, a small army to escort him back to Jerusalem so he can come back, survey the walls, and rebuild the city. And it worked. I mean, it was incredible. Nehemiah got to work. He made it public. He brought everything in. He gets everybody working on rebuilding the city. And you could just like, like see the progress from day to day as the walls, the city fortifications in Jerusalem go up. And they start to think that they have something to be proud of once again. And as the walls get higher and higher, it's almost like the opposition, the headwinds that Nehemiah faced got heavier and heavier and heavier until we come to this critical juncture, this critical point in the story today in Nehemiah chapter 6, where we see he's just about to finish the walls when the opposition, the headwinds, get the greatest that they ever will be in the story. So I invite you to turn to that now. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 6, Bible's under the chairs in front of you. We're a Bible app-friendly church as well. So if I see a blue screen, I'm just going to assume that you're not checking or you're, you know, Facebook and stuff, that you're, you're like following along the Bible story. Um, so that's a nice thing. Nehemiah chapter 6, we're going to start it out in verse 1, where it says this. It says, when word came to, there's a few names here. You don't have to remember them all, but it'd be nice to remember Sanballat. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. A pause. I just want to make a note. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, some of these names. And I was like, where did these guys come from? Well, one of the things is Sanballat especially was heading the opposition from Nehemiah against rebuilding Jerusalem for a very long time. And kind of all throughout, there's like these small little references, and we just haven't picked up on them until this morning. But, but now it's coming in because this is a critical juncture in the story. It's a huge part of the story when we see the opposition and just what it looks like. As a side note, I just kind of love to see some of these things come out because sometimes it's like, you know, we look at the story and we, we read it in the Bible and it's like, oh, there's these nice chapter headings and it's like leather bound and there's maps in the back and we think, like, isn't that a super holy thing? And it is, don't get me wrong. Like, don't quote me on that. Like, it totally is. But, but, but the significance of that is sometimes we forget that these are actual historical documents as well. And they're grounded in history with like real life people. Now this one, Nehemiah, is, is kind of a memoir of the leader of Nehemiah looking back on this. But what's also interesting is like 
50, I want to say 60 years ago or so, some archaeologists dug up some letters in that, around that place in, um, in modern-day Israel that date back to Nehemiah's time. And in those letters, it was referenced. Now, these are it's not Bible stuff or anything like that, but, but totally aside from that, it's just like kind of government scribes writing these letters to each other. And in those letters, Sanballat was quoted, was mentioned as being the governor of nearby Samaria. And I just like throw that out there. It just has like, oh, that is so cool. It doesn't really have much to do with it. But, but just to like ground these things in history. But then it also teaches us, that, okay, if Sanballat was the governor of nearby Samaria, the Samarians and the, and the, and the uh, people who lived in Jerusalem got together. Like, they mixed like oil and water. There was so much bad blood. You can Google that. I mean, it's like a whole story there. But you just got to know that they're like the half-brothers kind of thing of the Jerusalemites. And there's so much bad blood. And there's like Sanballat and Nehemiah as like rival governors. They have somewhat of a frenemy status. Like they're supposed to be together from the outside, from like Persians or anybody in the outside world. But then when you, you look at the, the, the dealings inside, it's like they're constantly trying to like undermine. Well, in this case, Sanballat is constantly trying to undermine Nehemiah. And then Tobiah and Geshem the Arab, it's, it's all the same. These are, these are the head people that are leading the opposition against Nehemiah. Okay, now in verse 2, Sanballat, one of them, just as they're finishing off, right? So they got the whole wall done, not a gap in it. And they just have to finish the gates. It's like 99% there, like so close. And then Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. He said, hey, hey, come let us let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. We're not going to do the maps thing where you're like, oh, this is exactly Ono, and this is something you're going to forget two seconds from now. So we're not going to do that. But you should know that Ono is, it's, it's like a day's journey away. Uh, so it's not an unreasonable request, but it's not a great one either. It's a day's journey of him being away from the wall. One way, you spend a day like having breakfast or coffee or something like that in Ono, and then you presumably come back for a day. So you lose a few days at least in, in travel and, and hanging out there. And it's also, it's far enough away that it, it's not like it's in enemy territory, like a bad place, but it isn't exactly friendly territory either. And so he starts to like put this thing together, like, wait a second here, uh, why would I take a time away from, my, from this project and like go and hang out with you guys in Ono? Like something, it doesn't quite pass the smell test. So Nehemiah, again, writing in the rear view, he writes this, he goes uh, in his memoir, but of course they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. And before we see what the reply is, I want us to, I want us to notice something. Like he knows when he's gonna get there, it's a trap. He knows that they're scheming. He knows, listen, all my enemies, they want to like lure me a days away from home. He knows that, he knows that this might not go well. And he also kind of knows that it isn't a terrible opportunity for him to be there if it does go well. Because he also knows that Tobiah is a governor. He knows that Sanballat's like the chief enemy governor of Samaria. He knows that it would be a good thing to have these people like on his side. I mean, he's going to be the governor after all this is done. So wouldn't it be not a bad thing? Wouldn't it be kind of a good thing, in fact, is to build up all of these relationships with his like governor buddies in the surrounding areas? Maybe if he, maybe if he took time away from the, the city fortification project and it took time away from that, maybe... Maybe he could build up a relationship where, where there wouldn't be so much opposition or there wouldn't be so much headwinds coming in. And at this point, I want to just pause. And I want to invite you into the story. 
Because you probably have some, some project that you're working on, or you probably have some heartbreak that God has given. You, you have something that, that God has asked you to accomplish, and if you're not entirely sure, if you don't have a crystal clear image what that thing is in your mind, I'll just give it to you. Because our task as followers of Jesus is to become like him in every way. So if you're not exactly sure, like, what's my big project? What is my heartbreak? What am I supposed to do? In a very general sense, but specific to you, you're supposed to look and live more and more like Jesus all the time. And so that's like this great project it's working on. And then good opportunities might come along. Good opportunities might come, you, come along to first kind of opposition, to distract you from the great thing that you're supposed to be doing. Uh, Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, um, he, uh, he, he said, you know, the enemy, the enemy of great isn't, isn't terrible or isn't awful. The enemy of great is good enough. It's good enough, being distracted by a hundred good things, never actually accomplishing the main one. And so Nehemiah takes a minute and, he, and he's just about to give them his reply. And I just, I just think this next line is so important because it has the power for you to speak over whatever situation, whatever distraction there is in your life, you can use these words, and I think they're going to be so critically important for the rest of the message and also for the week and months, years ahead, and whatever, whatever great project that God is laying on your heart, breaking your heart with, say these words over. Let's read it. And it says, I am, Nehemiah says, give him this reply, I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Now he finishes it up and he says, why should the work stop? Well, I leave it and go down to you. But it's that first line above the period, before the period, where that, that one singular line I think is just so incredibly important. I, I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. In fact, it's so important that I want to invite you just to say that with me now. It's on the screen. Let's say it together. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. I'm carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. Now, just imagine if you could what would happen if in every situation that you bumped into, in every distraction that you came into that wasn't your great project, that wasn't your thing, if you could speak those words, I'm carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. Why should I stop? Why should I get down? Like, like whatever the, the project is, and by the way, one of my favorite parts about this line is that we read it sometimes in, in English here out of our like leather brown fancy Bible, hardcover Bibles, you know, and it's all like, it's, it's nice looking. It says, I am carrying on. It's easy to read it that way and to assume that Nehemiah is such a great leader and he has such a great, uh, great project ahead of him. Like, like, wow, is this about Nehemiah. But if you look at it in Nehemiah's own memoir in the language that he had himself had written it in, you start to see that the first couple of words about I am, like, aren't even there. That's the subtext. The emphasis in the line is about the great project that he is involved with, that he's been honored to, to participate in. So at this point, I have to do like a, like a gut check, right? Because that's probably one of the most important takeaways you could take out of this time together is that question, whose project is it? Like, is it your project? I mean, it's, it's your heartbreak too, sure, but, but does God, does his heart also break for this thing or is it really just about you or about me? See, see, within that question about whose project is it makes such a huge difference between all of the, the obstacles or all of the headwinds that we're gonna come into, whether it's a distraction, as we see right here with the opportunity to meet with the other governors, 
or whether it's, whether it's somebody trying to undermine his credibility, trying to discredit him, as we're going to see in just a minute, or, or whether it's causing Nehemiah some dismay. They all start with this. I know, it's just a preacher thing, I know. But no matter what it is, it's that one singular question that holds the key to understanding how to tread through whatever opposition, whatever headwinds you, come, you find yourself coming into, whether on the mountain or in the valley, simply asking that question, whose project is this? In Nehemiah, we're going to see, he seems to have figured out the answers. This isn't my project. This is God's project. And I'm just humbled enough to be a part of it. And if it's not my project, I mean, that's, it's so incredibly liberating. It's so incredibly freeing because it means that I can't fail. It means that God is going to shine brightly through me and through all my work. And so he gives them the response. He goes, hey, why should the work stop? Well, I leave it, and I come down to you and spend a couple days. And then we're going to finish the, or continue on the line, and it says, um, in verse 4, eight, four times, four times they sent me the same message. And each time I gave them the same answer. Like they kept coming back and coming back and coming back. Uh, hey, let's go meet us on the, on the plane in the village in Ono. And every time, every time he came back and he said, I'm carrying on. I'm going to add God's great project, and I cannot come down. Remember, it's a good thing for him to build up, to build up these relationships. Uh, maybe, as Jim Collins says, not a great thing, but it's, a, it's a, good, a good enough thing. And Nehemiah, he sees the distractions that lie ahead of him, and he goes, no, 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 this isn't, this isn't for me. And he gives him that line, I'm carrying on a great project, and I cannot come down. Whatever your area of heartbreak is, Whatever your area is, your great project that God has laid on your heart, whatever that might be, just what would it mean? What would the difference be? As if every time a distraction from that singular greatest thing came up, as if you looked back and you said, no, 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 I'm carrying on a great project, and I cannot come down. You know, embedded within that line, and I love this, is that, is that it has the ability to say no. I can't. I'm sorry, I can't. I can't. I have something more important. I have a yes that I need to say yes to. So I have to give you a no. I can't come down. No, I'm sorry. Uh, somebody told me, like, like starting out, somebody told me that when you say, Dirk, when you say yes to something, you're saying no to all kinds of other things that you don't even know what those things are yet. So just tread carefully saying yes. And I used to say yes, like all the time. <laughs> Like, again, encountered how many people at it, so, like, I could just say yes to everything, especially in the first year, right, where I'd go out and people wanted to, like, yeah, let's, let's you know, go have a meeting, and I'd say yes. And they're like, hey, let's go, you know, out for ice cream or out for coffee, and I'd say yes. Hey, let's have a meeting, and I would say yes. Hey, can you, you know, do the speaking thing? And I'd say yes. Let's have a meeting, and I'd say yes. Did I mention anything about meetings so far at all? Is it, maybe that's just me, but, right? There's so many good things so many good things that I could say yes to. And so I found myself like spending five, six nights away from home, uh, six nights away uh, a week saying yes to things that weren't even the greatest thing. Until September 16 <laughs> rolled around and I held like a little seven pound person and other people started referring to me as dad. <laughs> and I realized that the greatest project that I had had nothing to do with this, had nothing to do with job, had nothing to do with church, had nothing to do with this movement. The greatest project that God had given me was pouring into this person. And so I find myself, in my own way at the time, saying no, and now like using these words, no, no, 
I'm car- can you come out? Can we do this meeting? Now, I'm carrying on a great project, and I cannot go down. I just can't. And so I made a commitment of saying, two nights, two nights out of the week, I'm going to be away. And all the rest of them are going to be home. Because after all, I'm carrying on a great project, and so I cannot go down for just anything. Okay, that's me. <laughs> and some of you are going, yeah right? It's because you work for a church. (laughs) And you can literally stand on stage and say something like that. Like, we have a lot of names for my boss, but but Jesus isn't one of them, right? You work for Jesus. There's no way. Yet that may work for you to stand on a stage to say these sort of things, but that's not going to fly at my office. In my office, if if you're going to stay in the inner circle, like you have to put in the time and you have to make sacrifices and you have to, and so I just want to like do one of those gut checks and say, Wait a second. Is that the great project? Like, is that the area of heartbreak that God has given you? Is that what he has called you? If it is, like all in, 100%. But sometimes over the course of time, things change. And you're going, I'm not, even, I'm not sure that it is anymore. And so when those things come up, when those good opportunities come up, that isn't everything. I just wonder what would happen, what, what the power would be, what the difference in your life over a long period of time. If you look back with Nehemiah's words and said, I'm sorry, I'm carrying on a great project and I cannot come down. Try to maybe say that to yourself and not to somebody else without some context. Maybe send them a link or something to understand like what in the world that you're talking about. But you have a great project. Maybe it's a job thing. Maybe it's a family thing. Maybe it's just like a get out of debt thing. And you're like, this is what, like for the next year, I'm going to go all in. I'm going to go hard at that thing, right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finally do this thing, right? And you've got debt snowball, right? Some of you know exactly, exactly what I'm talking about, maybe a little too well. And, and it's like, it's going and you're making progress and you're seeing progress. And you're like, yes, yes. And then opportunities come up about a vacation or about a new trinket or thing to buy or phone or something. And, it, and I just wonder what difference that it would make if you spoke into that and you say, no, 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 I'm carrying on a great project and I cannot go down for just anything. The first opposition that Nehemiah runs into is just a huge distraction. And he's able to cut through that and say, no, 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 this, that may be good, but I'm carrying on something great, something great from God. And that is so much more important than that because Sanballat now won't give up. He switches tactics a little and now he tries to undermine him from the inside. Right now he tries to discredit him. He goes on the line, he goes, okay, four times in a row, they did that message thing. Verse 5, then the fifth time, Sanbal sent his aid with the same message, and in his hand was an, was an unsealed letter. Oh, keep in mind, letters were a scroll, like written up with a, some, some wax, and then a stamp on them, so that as the messenger carried it, and if the messenger were to deliver a message with the seal broken, it might be literally his head on the, you know, hook or That got a little graphic for Mother's Day, so I'm sorry about that. But you get, like, the importance of sealing a letter, right? But now Sanibel sends an unsealed letter. I mean, it's just open for everybody to read. And believe me, they would read them. I mean, it's almost like just posting an open letter online. The point was for as many people to read it as possible, which makes kind of a difference when this is what the content in the letter is. By the way, uh, in which, inside the letter, it's written... It's reported among the nations. Oh, and by the way, Geshem says that it's true. Geshem was sort of against this thing from the beginning. He has everything to gain from Nehemiah's failure. But besides that, it's reported among the nations as the ancient culture equivalent of, hey, some people are saying that, and we see the content of the letter, that you, Nehemiah, and the Jews 
are plotting to revolt. And therefore, you, and therefore you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king. And have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. This proclamation, there is a king in Judah. And now this report will get back to the king. So come, let's get together in Ono again. If you could, we've got something for you there. You see what he's doing? Like it's so clever on Sanballat's part because it's not even about Nehemiah and what Nehemiah is going to do. There's nothing he can do because it's about everybody else that's now paying attention. He's he's spreading the rumor that Nehemiah is going to revolt against the king of Persia by becoming a king himself. It's essentially like Nehemiah saying, we're going to take Grand Rapids and we're going to declare war on the United States of America. And it's like, yeah, that's going to go super well for you, right? But if everybody around town was starting to look at their governor as somebody who wanted to become king and was going to do this, the whole city of Jerusalem was then going to lose confidence in Nehemiah and his leadership and his governor. And they're going to turn against him saying, why on earth would we do that? Why on earth would we install you as a king? And then if word got back to King Artaxerxes back in Persia, that Nehemiah, King Artaxerxes, by the way, who bankrolled this entire operation of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and then word gets back that Nehemiah took the check and all the supplies and the army and everything, and is now going to start like this rival kingdom and declare himself a king? Like, this is not going to end well for Nehemiah, and Sanballat knows it. That's the plan. He's starting this rumor to discredit him and to turn everybody against him. And Nehemiah like takes all of this in, and it's so incredible. It's so incredible to hear all of these people just say horrible and toxic things about him and all of these ulterior motives. And he takes it all, and you know what he says? Essentially nothing. Listen, I sent him this reply. Hey, nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head, period. And then he adds, like, come, remember, it's his memoir. So he goes, yeah, and by the way, they're just trying to frighten us, thinking that their hands, that's a euphemism for, like, the people up on the wall building, their hands will get too weak for the work, and it will not be completed. But I pray, strengthen my hands. Which I just, I love the simplicity of the prayer, right? When he just simply says, hey, they're just trying to discredit me. They're trying to start false rumors about me. Don't worry, I got that. You know, if anybody, if I worry about anybody getting discouraged who are building this thing, I'll just simply pray, Lord, then strengthen my hands. God, because again, this isn't my project. It's your project. It's your thing that you're going to do. You're going to accomplish on your scale, in your timeline, in your way. This is your project, not mine. You know why I think that Nehemiah can sleep so well at night knowing that there's so many horrible rumors being talked about him from all over? I think Nehemiah knows that banked behind him is a massive amount of character. Like for this while, like, like all of the people that worked with him, all of the people that knew him well, they all knew that he was a person of character. They knew that he wouldn't cut the corners of his character in serving out on God's project because what's the point? It's not his project anyway. It's God's project. And everybody else, they noticed that. They noticed that he was a person of character. And so when, by the time this came around, he just, everybody, he knew that everybody else knew that they wouldn't believe it. Because they worked with him, and they lived with him. 
And if that dangerous situation got back, that the word or the rumor of him being installed himself as a king got back to the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, then he would know that Artaxerxes wouldn't believe it because he served in Artaxerxes' court as his right-hand man for years and years. And Artaxerxes has seen his character live out again and again and again. And so he could sleep well at night knowing knowing that everybody else knew that he was a person of character. I read earlier this week, I love this line, so I thought I'm going to share it with you. It says that character beats competency every time. And the person went on to say, isn't it true that, we, that, that, that if somebody had enough character, like, like, and if they were charging the gates of hell with a water pistol, like you would follow them. Maybe not literally, I mean, that's something, but, but like you would follow that person because of the incredible amount of character that they have. Character beats competency every time. And Nehemiah knew that he's been going out, going about his entire life, making these daily deposits of character. And it wasn't developed overnight. Character isn't developed overnight. Character isn't developed in a day, but it is built daily over his entire life. So that by the time a rumor starts spreading around, Nehemiah's like, listen, anybody who knows me knows that that's not going to be true. So I'm not even, even going to worry about it. Uh, Stan Ballot tries to distract him. He tries to discredit him. And now he causes him dis- dismay. He causes him to fear. Listen to what he, his, his last plan. He goes, uh, okay, now one day, Nehemiah talking, one day I went to the house of Shemaiah, uh, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. Pause. This is a guy that wouldn't get off the wall for anything, to any sort of distraction, except he does for this Shemaiah fella. Now, we don't know anything else about Shemaiah other than he is worth Nehemiah coming off the wall for. So we know that these guys are probably pretty close. And Sanbal goes to his friend Shemaiah and says this. He said, um, this is what Shemaiah said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. You're not supposed to do that. And let us close the temple doors. Why would you do that? Okay, because men are coming to kill you by night. They're coming to kill you. So Shemaiah is like, hey, uh, someone told me, probably Sanballat told me, that he has sent some like secret assassins to come get you at night. Like, Nehemiah, I think we should run to the temple and, and like close up the doors. That is a tricky plan. Because, and Nehemiah, he sees through it because, well, what makes it so insidious is, is that you are technically allowed to go into the temple if precaution, if a situation arises. He, was a, he, he wasn't a priest and only priests were allowed to go into the temple. But if you would like, it says in Numbers that if you were to, to murder somebody or, or I mean, like on accident like get in, or hurt somebody on accident and if their family wanted to take revenge on you, you could hide out in the temple and wait for a judge to arrive and like hear the case and make a just ruling about it. You could take, um, you could take sanctuary in the temple in God's presence. And Nehemiah knew this isn't one of those situations because this is just speculation. This is just rumor that these assassins are coming. And so he knew that if, if he did that, if he hid out in the temple, number one, everybody would see through it and he would, he would discredit himself. And number two, and number two is that if everybody else saw their leader, their governor, like hiding and cowering, breaking the rules by going into the temple, they would completely lose trust in their leader. 
But after all, wouldn't you say, Nehemiah, aren't you terrified? Aren't you so scared? Like they're com- you know that they're good for it. Aren't you afraid that half of what he says is true? After all, it's coming from a friend. And you know, I don't think he was. I don't think he was, again, because he knew whose project this was. 